Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we are fighting our way through the penguin-fringed abyss to the heart and the very end of the Mountains of Madness. There is time to secure your copy of the Blasphemous Tome. Anyone who is backing the Good Friends of Jackson Elias on Patreon will receive a copy of our print-only fanzine, Issue 5, that we produce exclusively for everyone who backs us on Patreon. This is a zine that is licensed by Chaosium and features all sorts of cool stuff for Call of Cthulhu, including a scenario by you, Matt. Yay! Which you still don't have a title for, do you? Well, I provisionally title number 22. All right, good, 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 good. (laughs) Is it a bus? No, a house. So number 22 on the street. I just want to see a scenario set on board a bus. That'd be cool. Yeah, but it can't go below 50 mile an hour. That's, uh, that's already been done. <laughs> Night bus to Leng. <laughs> and in a few days' time, at the uh, time of release, on Saturday the 30th of November 2019, there's Dragon Meet, the one-day games convention taking place in Hammersmith, London. You're going to be there running games, Matt? Yeah. And I think Baz and Gaz of What Would the Smart Party Do will be doing a panel there. I might be on it. Scott, I think you're invited as well. Or I, I'm not going to Dragon Meat. You're not meat. going to Dragon Meat. So at the time of recording, I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure things will be up by the time this goes out. So please check social media and the website and so on and come along to the panel. And now on to our main topic, Chapter 12 of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Well, we left it with a certain subway train-style monster rushing up a tunnel towards our two heroes. Danforth and Dyer flee back up through the dead city. Later, their recollections of this are dreamlike. It was as if we floated in a nebulous world or dimension without time, causation or orientation. Even once they reach daylight, they do not even consider going back for Gedney's body. Hell Hell no! (laughs) (laughs) That guy that's dead down there on that sledge somewhere down in those tunnels, should we go and get him? Well, no, we can't can't bring him back now. They're missing a great set piece for the campaign that follows this if they do. Yeah. (laughs) But also, I mean, that description there, it was as if we floated in a nebulous world or dimension without time, causation or orientation. Mm. That is a very poetic way of explaining a bout of madness to players. I think that's something that keepers could and should pay attention to. Yeah. Because it has a certain otherworldly dreamlike quality to it, which makes it sound a bit more interesting than, you know, you faint or you go, ah, and run away. Yeah, it's not just being in terror, it's dreamlike. Yeah, well, a a dissociated state. Yeah. It does just describe my life between 8.30 and 5 on Monday (laughs) and Friday. (laughs) Well, speaking of which, exhausted, the two men finally reach the surface. The cold is fearsome, and the sky above is a churning and opalescent mass of tenuous ice vapours. Making their way through the surface structures, they finally get to their aeroplane. Looking back, they see a dim, elfin line of pinnacled violet beyond the city. They marvel at the beauty, but this turns to horror as they realise that this must be the peaks, the terrible mountains of the Forbidden Land. Highest of Earth's peaks and focus of Earth's evil. Harbourers of nameless horrors and Archean secrets. Shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning. Untrodden by any living thing of Earth. But visited by the sinister lightnings. And sending strange beams across the plains in the polar night. There is so much you can use out of that. For a start, the idea that these mountains are things that horrific things prey to. There's this idea that it sends out strange beams of light and that it's visited by sinister lightnings. I mean, that's not just like storms playing across it. These lightnings seem to have some life behind them or something more than just atmospherics. It does remind me a little bit of one of the sonnets in Frungi from Yogoth describing the uh, the Elder Pharos, where it says mm. that this uh, lonely beam of light shines up into the night sky that uh, makes shepherds whine in prayer. And funnily enough, we will revisit that before we come to the end of this chapter. Uh-huh. 
Although these peaks could be no more than 300 miles away, Dyer likens them to the serrated edge of a monstrous alien planet about to rise into unaccustomed heavens. A little bit of slice of alien heaven on Earth. As overwrought as Dyer seems to be, Danforth is doing much worse. The two men shudder as they see mist rising as it did far below the Earth. Despite these terrors, Danforth manages to start the plane, and the two men take off, well, as safely as they can under the circumstances. This is why having so much higher spot-hidden skill really doesn't help in some cases. It's also a good example, as we'll see in a moment, as to why you really want more than one character to have the pilot skill if planes are involved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the piping sound of the wind through the peaks makes Danforth's hands tremble. So Dyer takes over as pilot. Yes, he's got the skill. Danforth regals in his seat, looking back at the city. As Dyer navigates the pass, Danforth starts screaming, almost causing Dyer to crash. Whatever Danforth saw as he looked back, Dyer says that he has never been the same since. Danforth did try to tell him about it, and the incoherent snatches he relayed were enough to convince Dyer that no one else must return to these parts. So again, we get a severe sand loss at, at seeing something, you know, in the rearview mirror almost, you know, looking over his shoulder and seeing something. We don't... Well, it's never really defined what, but... We're about to get hints of it, and mm. yeah, perhaps there is more than just seeing involved here, because some of the things that he's about to relate are perhaps a bit more than you might guess from just little snatches or little glimpses of something. It is absolutely necessary for the peace and safety of mankind that some of Earth's dark, dead corners and unplumbed depths be let alone, lest sleeping abnormalities awake to resurgent life and blasphemously surviving nightmares squirm and splash out of their black layers to newer and wider conquests. And that is, I, I think, a lot of Call of Cthulhu scenarios in a nutshell there, isn't it? Just mm. that, that one paragraph. The Shoggoths are coming, the Shoggoths are coming. Well, it's not just the Shoggoths, but this you know, whole idea that there are these pockets of forgotten, lost nightmare around the world just waiting to be reawoken. Yeah. You know, the, these ancient, nameless horrors that are just there from a time before humanity ever existed that we are completely oblivious to and can wake up at any time. All Dyer knows is that the final horror Danforth witnessed was a mirage but one unrelated to the glimpses of the city they had spied before. Instead, it came from the distant peaks of the farther range. We learn that Danforth has on rare occasions whispered disjointed and irresponsible things about the Black Pit, the Carven Rim, the Proto-Shoggoths, the windowless solids with five dimensions, the nameless cylinder, the Elder Pharos, Yogg-Sothoth, the Primal White Jelly, the colour out of space, the wings, the eyes in darkness, the moon ladder, the original, the eternal, the undying, and other bizarre conceptions. But when he is fully himself, he repudiates all this and attributes it to curious and macabre readings of earlier years. Danforth, indeed, is known to be among the few who have ever dared to go completely through that worm-riddled copy of the Necronomicon, kept under lock and key in the college library. So does that mean Dyer only read the good bits? You know, he'd look to see whether the Necronomicon opened it, you know, the, and those were obviously the bits worth reading. You know? well, the he, cliff notes, that's what yes. he read, yeah. He's like any student, he just wants the, he just wants the synopsis. <laughs> but what is the primal white jelly? <laughs> Danforth. If, if you have to ask, Paul, if you have to ask. I do have to ask. <laughs> but yes we get the reference to the elder pharos there that you mentioned earlier uh -huh. matt do you want to say a bit more about what that is yeah there's, there's a couple of different interpretations it seems between um, some of the stories namely thinking of the dream quest of unknown kadath the fungi from yogoth sonnet and some of the material that's being written around the uh, the dreamland source book for call of cthulhu it's described as a, a pharos or monastery from which this beam of blue light shoots up into the sky each well, night. That, I mean, the, the reason for that, I mean, the word pharos, you know what that means. It's like a lighthouse, yeah, isn't it? it is. Yeah. yeah, it's an old term for a lighthouse. Yeah. Of which inside there is a thing which, depending on your interpretation, could be one, one of several things. But a figure dressed in yellow with this yellow mask or a yellow veil over its face, described in the sonnet as being the last elder one who talks to chaos alongside the beat of drums. But 
the figure was created before Lovecraft had read The King in Yellow, so it's not a reference to Hastor or, the, or rather The King in Yellow from Chambers' work. Well, because we did cover some of that when we talked about The King in Yellow, mm-hmm. and the fact that there was that uh, figure dressed in yellow silken robes in mm-hmm. Leng in The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath mm-hmm. as well. So it sounds like it probably ties in with that. Yes, Except the the idea of it talking it goes a little bit counterpoint to Dream Quest because the only way that the creature communicates in that is via piping. It's hinted at that it's a moon beast because of the way its uh, paws are described, the colour of the skin, the way it moves and so on. And that it's also a servant of Nyarthotep rather than being the Chocho Lama of Leng, which is another name that's been pinned to it. We also have the Black Pit mentioned here, which does seem to perhaps echo the Pit of the Shoggoths mm. that we encounter later in the thing on the doorstep. And yeah, similarly, we've got the Proto-Shoggoths there. Yeah. Now, I'd forgotten until I was rereading this that this was a term that Lovecraft himself had come up with, because I've seen it seized upon by other writers and used quite memorably in at least one Call of Cthulhu scenario I've mm-hmm. played. But here, again, he's not specifying what it means and he has talked about how the shoggoths were created by the old ones out of this raw protoplasmic matter so it sounds like perhaps this might be the raw matter that they drew upon so what would that be like then this you know the idea of the stuff that makes up a shoggoth perhaps with some of the same properties but without perhaps any intellect driving it or just raw energy raw power like plasticine or putty yeah, <laughs> your childhood must be very different than mine. Mm, it seems not very malevolent, but yeah, I mean, like a prototype for the Shoggoths, right? That's kind of how I'm taking it. Yeah, and and really thought of it that way. I, th- I thought, you know, more is the raw materials mm. from which they were built. Yeah, I don't know. There was like proto-human that it's something that hasn't quite fully evolved or fully grown into what we would see as that subway train rushing horror from the story but something maybe smaller something of less use well except they've already been covered or at least something like that has been covered already in the story in that that's much more like what the shoggoths were when the the old ones originally built them first ones were described as being able to fit in sphere 15 feet in diameter yeah, rather than being a subway train so yeah, yeah probably the earlier version then. and also there's the windowless solids with five dimensions yeah that's that's just I mean, the, that's the whole the scenario in itself. It, I don't know why. It just, could be well, anything. I mean, that does almost, you know, start hinting at some of the ideas that Lovecraft would explore in the dreams in the witch house mm. uh, with multidimensional spaces that somehow breach our normal conceptions of space and time. I just read it that it was more that they have five sides rather than five dimensions. I was just oh, I was okay. picturing just the buildings in the city. No, mm. no, I, I, I'd see that as being five-dimensional objects. Mm. That's something I imagine you could have quite a lot of fun with, you know, if you just extrapolated that as an idea. Mm-hmm. What would such an object be used as? Perhaps a prison of some kind? Perhaps capable of, of holding some kind of entity that transcends space and time itself? I know this is going to uh, be almost blasphemy, but there is a Brian Lumley story I quite like. Oh. Uh, just, uh, Scott's shaking yeah, his which head. Which one? You're dead to me, Matt. Uh, yeah. Well, he's actually two. Because um, he wrote, he wrote <laughs> two of them. You're not helping. Yeah. <laughs> But they do kind of follow on. They're almost the one when you put them together. Um, his House of Doors novels, oh. which are very these structures that suddenly appear out of nowhere that don't have any windows that appear almost like a castle, but with no apparent way in. Well, perhaps he took inspiration mm. from this. Yeah. And, of course, we get the reference to the colour out of space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of the story of the same name. And a few generic sounded things like the wings and the eyes in darkness. Mm. And then the moon ladder. Apparently this is an alternate name for Jacob's ladder from the Old Testament. Ah. So, yeah, this is the ladder that you know, supposedly came to, I, I believe, Jacob, that would explain the name, in a vision that showed people ascending up into heaven. The so, cats don't need that, they can just jump up there. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine a Lovecraftian moon ladder would lead to heaven, though. If you would try to use something like that in a scenario, what what would that be? Where would it lead to? A lot of climb rolls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot. Yeah. Matt's, because, characters, because Matt's they, characters wouldn't make that. Yeah. Cli- climb off. rolls always make games more fun. Yeah, I'd fall off the first fucking rung. I'd probably draw in some of the stuff, again, from the, the moon that's been put into some of the older scenarios. Like how Andor is supposed to be up on the moon in a temple in the Dreamlands, where plotting his return back to Earth where he can start his evil empire all over again. And the cats can jump up to the moon, so maybe the ladder leads up to the moon. Yeah. And then the original, the eternal, the undying. 
the original there. Uh, so I guess if you sort of play with that idea that Azathoth was what you know started everything, and we all exploded out from there like the Big Bang, then that could be him. Or another one that we've covered in a previous episode, the archetypes. Because mm. mm. they're very much the original and the eternal and, as it says, the undying form that man was originally intended to be. Which kind of goes counterpoint to Lovecraft's origin to say that the older things created mankind. You're looking for consistency in Lovecraft. I know, it's that way madness lies. <laughs> but yes, I, the shock of witnessing all of these things was too great for Danforth's already fragile sanity. And he just falls into complete incoherence. These little snippets that we just heard, he relays to Dyer at a much later time. For the remainder of the plane journey, however, all he is capable of is the cry of Dekli Lee! Dekli Lee! Which I still think in Elder, in elder Thing is move it, you lazy shoggoth. Whip. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the story, the end of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Now let's move on to look at adaptations and other derived works based on At the Mountains of Madness. Well, on the RPG front, I, we've, we've hinted that there might be a campaign. There is. <laughs> well, we all played it for one thing, and I'm still yes. running it. Yeah. So do you want to give us a kind of little spoiler-free idea of what Beyond the Mountains Madness is, Matt? Well, for those of you that uh, picked up on the couple of references we made to it and those who read the story... It mentions this pesky expedition called the Starkweather Moor Expedition. Guess what, folks? You're on the trip. Yeah, this is Dyer's whole remit for writing the story. He wants to deter Starkweather and Moor, making their expedition to the Antarctic a follow-up of the journey that Dyer himself uh, undertook. They're going down there to kind of repatriate the bodies to uh, pick up from what happened and basically find out what did happen to them down there. So this is the perfect setup. Yeah, there's some added complications. Like you're not the only group going down there. You learn pretty much from the oh, beginning. Ah, yes. To say yes. that there are other ex- expeditions, plural, going down there, yeah. and that there's going to be quite a crowded little continent down there. Yeah. I think there is a lot of good stuff in Beyond the Mountains of Madness. I think, you know, as a campaign, it's got great potential. As a source book for Antarctic expeditions and setting Call of Cthulhu scenarios there, it's unparalleled. Mm. I think it does have problems in terms of... I mean, I found it a bit frustrating as a player at times that a lot of the important decisions were being made by NPCs, and there were a lot of set-piece scenes where basically the Keeper is instructed that regardless of what happens, regardless of what the players do and how the dice rolls go, this is the outcome, so ignore everything the players do. And that gets wearing after a while. But if you're a creative Keeper and are willing to perform a little surgery on it, there's a great campaign there. Yeah, yeah. I've been running it as a pulp campaign for, well, well over a year now. Uh, We've had a couple of breaks, admittedly, but it's been going for quite a long time. And we are in a very different place to how the campaign says that we're supposed to be or where, <laughs> really? where we've yeah. reached. Yeah. So did, did you stick with the structure of Stark, Weather and Mora in charge of everything in their NPCs? Oh, hell no. Right, so, so no. how did you handle it? We actually were playing with an existing group who were going through another uh, series of one-shots that I'd put together. And they came across a letter from the House of a Dead Journalist that was inviting them to the press release for the announcement of the expedition. So they went down to meet Starkweather and more ahead of the press release happening and pretty much said, well, we've got shitloads of money between us because they, uh, they had a whole bucket load of credit rating around them. And one of the things that you learn, obviously, from the beginning of the campaign is they are still fundraising to get the expedition off the ground because they have no two people have got all the money that they need. So it ended up being that the PC said, well, we'll put up all the money for this. You keep your names on the expedition as it is. So you're pretty much the figureheads, but we'll run the whole thing and do it our way. Nice. So, yeah, they were essentially the guys running the show. Good. Yeah, I think that would certainly assuage a lot of my concerns about the campaign. Mm. It means you don't have to go through some quite laborious and quite (laughs) detailed setup. It's the one thing I think that is a double-edged sword with it. Very much like At the Mountains of Madness, it is very detail-heavy at the start. Almost off-puttingly so in one particular place, there's one scene I remember where 
Well, I say see now in it's a session or two where you're basically stock keeping. You're going through the supplies for the expedition and checking them. And there are interesting things you can learn from it. But it really does involve you sitting there as players and going through a detailed cargo manifest and you know making notes on it and deciphering it and basically stock keeping. Two words came to mind with that, delegation and moving Oh, and second phrase, moving on. Which um, is what did, our yeah. keeper did quite a bit, I think. Yeah, Robin yeah. did a good job of that. I, We still spent the best part of a session doing it. One, uh, but one I, roll and ten minutes is what I got it down to. Yeah, I, I was just about to say, I mean, it reminds me of the discussions we've had about solving puzzles in games. That, you know, if you have... A player like, say, me, who will punch you in the face if you make him do this, then... He's not joking. He really is (laughs) not joking. Then, yeah, make make an accountancy role or, you know, some suitable skill role to to work all this out. Hmm. These were the people running the organisation as the investigators, so I went, no, no, you've got the handout, make your one role, you identify where the problem is and you delegate someone else to fix it. Done. Ten minutes, move on to the fun stuff. But like I said, I mean, none of these problems are insurmountable. And I say problems because they're things I personally don't like. Other groups may really enjoy getting into that nitty-gritty, in which case, fine. But, yeah, none of these problems are insurmountable. None of them will break the game in any way. There's also a fair bit of elbow room in there where the Keeper can just make their own stuff up. Two big points I can remember in when we played it that when reading the book, I'm thinking, what the hell? Well, there's just it kind of hints at something and goes nowhere. But if a keeper wanted to go down that rabbit hole, for instance, there's, again, it's not really spoiler territory, but there's what happened to Dyer after returning back from the expedition. Right. Mm. And then there's not kind of side quest, but a side encounter you can find when you're heading towards Antarctica. There's basically this um, boat that's trapped in the ice that's this whaling vessel that's snapped in half. Oh, wow. You can go onto the vessel and explore around, and there's something you can find on there. Oh, right. But it's not really connected with the rest of the campaign, and it's never explained as to even why it's there. So any keeper could go, well, it might be something you could potentially use that's helpful Mm. later in the campaign, or it's just something completely that you just happen to stumble across by accident. But again, any keeper can run with it and fill the gap. Hmm. I mean, of all the campaigns I've played, I'd say it's by far the one I've enjoyed the most. It's a weird thing. It's a great thing to play it. Running it is a very different issue Mm. because it it can feel very restrictive and very constricting in the fact that it is so linear in places. But much like the story, when you get to the city, it's a whole lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I would say it's my favourite campaign, but I'd say it's a real curate's egg of a campaign. The bits of it I enjoyed, I really enjoyed, and the bits of it I didn't enjoy, which, like I say, can be changed or excised very easily, I I really did not enjoy them. They made me genuinely angry, which kind of soured the whole thing a bit. And there were some additional play aids that Chaosium released a few years later. And the, the original campaign came out in 1999. And then in 2007, they released this additional packet of play aids, which I seem to remember Robin had when he ran it for us. Oh, gosh, I don't remember. Yeah. I know I've got it at the Keep Screen and so on. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. There's, there's actually two sets then. Because there's the pack that you're thinking of with the GM screen, which also has things like the sewable patch yes. um, that yeah. you can get. That's all in one pack. But then also a few years later, after that, because I remember when it came out at Gen Con, because I was there for when they initially released it, all the play aids were collected in a separate book of their own. Oh, okay. Uh, so you could get that very similar in style to the Moolers. Right. Uh, the Li- Miskatonic University Library Association collections they yeah. did. It was a white cover with the Antarctic map on the front, but it just collected everything in book form rather than being individual handouts. So this is a bit like what Chaosium have been doing recently with the PDF resource packs for things like Masks and the Two-Headed Serpent, yeah. where they've made those available to keepers so they're a, a nice separate resource. Mm-hmm. But this, I guess, was before Chaosium had really embraced digital publishing. Yeah, I, I think in, in retrospect it would have worked better as just a PDF mm. release, or if they'd gone down what they've done with masks more recently and some of the RuneQuest stuff where they actually provide a pack of all the loose handouts in one place. Because I, th- I even remember speak, uh, saying to Charlie on the stand and thinking, why have you got it in a book when I'm going to have to tear this thing apart to use it as handouts? Because mm. like, Or I'm going to have to bend and crack the spine by laying it flat to photocopy it. Mm. Why not just do it as single sheets? And he said, well, like it as a book. And there was another campaign as well, wasn't there, that was uh, followed on from all this, uh, which you were involved with, Paul? Yeah, I was involved um, to some degree in Assault on the Mountains of Madness for Acton Cthulhu, uh, published by Modiphius in 2013, uh, which is obviously a very different take on matters. 
By far the biggest way that you know, the Mountains of Madness has been reinvented and continued and, and has shown an influence, however, is in fiction. We've mentioned already how Lovecraft himself reused a lot of the elements from this or reincorporated them in, in things like Dreams in the Witch House, The Shadow of Innsmouth, The Thing on the Doorstep, and The Shadow Out of Time. But he was far from the only one to do this. Yeah, there's the uh, 1999 Antarctos Cycle, an anthology published by Chaosium, collected together you know a bunch of stories based around this these were existing stories they weren't stories that were written for the anthology so this is like a lot of the other cycle books that robert m price edited for chaosium and so it includes uh, things like you know some of the stories that definitely or possibly influenced lovecraft to write this things like uh the you know, arthur gordon pym and a story called the greatest adventure by john tain uh which I'm fairly sure both Leslie Klinger and S.T. Joshi in their annotated versions of this story both reference as being quite a strong influence, which admittedly I have not read. I've got the Antarctic Cycle on my shelf at home because it uses the same background art as Beyond the Mountains of Madness, which is yes. a fantastic cover art. It really is. Mm. But yeah, it's also one, I think, the thickest besides the Yellow Sign collection that they did. It's the oh, one yeah, of the biggest chunky. collections. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, apart from anything else, it does have the entirety of the narrative of A. Gordon Pym in there, which is a novel. So that's, you know, just as one of the stories in there, you've got a full-length novel. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, obviously at the Mountains of Madness itself, which is fairly chunky, and, and a whole bunch of other things. Oh, yeah, the thing from Another World, John W. Campbell, yeah. is also in there. And as you mentioned earlier, the restored novel version of that has come out now, Frozen Hell. Yes, is that right? yeah, it's out. I've seen copies of it. And finally, my, my leather-bound copy turned up in the post. Oh, cool. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's quite a it's relatively slim volume, but still big enough to be a single book on its own. Hmm. And The Great White Space by Basil Copper, uh, which almost retells the story, but in a more otherworldly setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. the space between spaces that the old one supposedly, or the great old one supposedly used to travel across the universe. Yeah. That there's other gods, other races, other things out there in this trans-dimensional backdoor of reality. Lots of insects. Mm. Well, if I remember right from flicking through it, lots of bugs. It is a very long time since I've read it, and I I remember very little about it. Basil Copper is one of these writers I keep meaning to go back and investigate further. Apparently he was quite prolific, though most of his stuff wasn't mythos fiction. But I remember my introduction to him was the story that he had in New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, which I think was called Shaft Number 247. It was the first story I encountered that actually depicted a world after the Great Old Ones had returned, mm. uh, this sort of post-Mythos Apocalypse world. Mm. And, you know, as a result, it's, it's kind of really kind of stuck with me. Now, another one that's been on my reading list for a little while now, which I haven't got round to looking at, is The Crevasse by Dale Bailey and a man we've mentioned a good number of times on the podcast, Nathan Ballingrid. Yeah, this is in North American Lake Monsters. When I wrote my review of it for the tome a while back, I did kind of highlight the story as being very much the odd one out in the book, that you know, the rest of the stories are very... I don't necessarily want to say grounded and realistic, but they're you know very much rooted in human horrors. But this is a very Lovecraftian story that you know mm. tells of again an ill-fated expedition to the South Pole that uncovers you know something alien. So we're going to see this in the TV series based on North American Lake Monsters. Yeah, I don't know. I, I hope so. For those of you who haven't heard, North American Lake Monsters has been optioned as a TV series by Hulu, uh, as an anthology TV series. All being well, assuming that nothing has fallen apart, I believe it's supposed to start shooting around the time we're recording. So if it is definitely going to happen, you're going to start seeing stuff about it fairly soon. And there is also a story called Branchline Repairman, which I hinted at earlier, but I couldn't remember the name, by Adrian Tchaikovsky, which can be found in The Private Life of Elder Things, a, a book that you, know, you can find a review of it on blasphemoustomes.com, and I really do recommend. Lots of really interesting takes on classic Lovecraftian elements, mostly monsters, but sometimes other things. And this reinvents the whole relationship between the Shoggoths and the Old Ones, puts it in a modern setting, and is really very imaginative. Mm. So, yeah, recommend it highly. And then, of course, when it comes to films, there is, of course, the thing from another world, or as we more perhaps regularly think of, the thing. As uh, we did a whole episode about that not so long back. The vampire carrot. 
the thing from another world. Yeah. Yes, indeed, the vampire <laughs> carrot. I don't know if it's directly influenced by this story, but it certainly it could well be. Well, it's, it's certainly based on who goes there, which yeah has got a, a huge influence from at the Mountains Madness in it, definitely. One of the things, I mean, you just touched on there, the, the whole vampire carrot aspect, but the, <laughs> the fact that in the original 1950s version, the creature is described as being um, It's described as a carrot. Yeah. But, but <laughs> yeah, it certainly can be comprised of vegetable matter, which is very much the way that the, you know, the old ones are described as in the, you know, the Mountains of Madness. You know, when Lake is originally examining them, he's saying that they're much more like vegetables and life forms. Or, yeah, he doesn't you know, say they're animals. like a carrot, though, does he? <laughs> well, but they, I get what you mean. Yeah. It's just when you say it's like a carrot, suddenly that kind of deflates any sense of horror or wonder. <laughs> yeah. like, it's because they're, they're more barrel-shaped. It's more like courgette, which is even more horrific. <laughs> I hate courgette. But, yeah, I, I think, again, the vampire carrot thing is a bit of a throwaway joke, but the, you know, the, it's the whole idea that this is a vegetable-based life form. Well, I, th- I think it is actually one of the lines from the film is very close to saying vampire carrot. It's something like a carrot that feeds on blood. Or something, that, something paraphrased to that. Yeah, but that, that's that's going to be a sardonic joke rather than the scientist trying to explain what it is. Oh, it's the, it's the journalist in there makes yeah. the comment. But it struck me as interesting that in the the 1950s original thing from Another World, you have the creature in it much more resembling the old ones in that respect, that it is this fusion of animal and vegetable life. Mm. Whereas when Carpenter comes along and reinvents the whole thing in, in the 1980s, it's like flipping it on its head and suddenly mm. we've got a shoggoth. And it looks nothing like James Arness in a jumpsuit. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the thing in, in The Thing, the 1982 The Thing, that really is a shocker, isn't it? Yeah, it can mould itself into whatever it likes. Well, it can mould itself into different shapes, but it doesn't have the scale or description of the Shoggoth that Lovecraft gives us, really, in oh, terms well. of that train bearing down on them and the, the massive bubbles and so on. The first this one is it more does. more of a... Huh? The first type of Shoggoth, the smaller one. Well, it, it, towards the end, when we see the you know the final version... Uh, the under, big one. ...under the base, yeah, yeah I mean, that's a similar mm. kind of scale. It just grows. As we mentioned as well about Guillermo del Toro, one day, one day he will get his project off the ground. I live in hope. Yeah, it's um, almost mythic now. Adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness, which script was finished in 2006 and pitched to Warner Brothers uh, as a blockbuster starring Tom Cruise as Dyer. Which is exactly who you picture when you're reading the story, isn't it? Well, it is, isn't it? Yeah. No! He's probably about, he's probably about the right age, actually. Yeah. He's 54. I'm not sure how old Cruz is. He must be around that. Yeah, he's in his mid-50s. So. He only wanted yeah. to do it because he got to run at the end to run away from a Shoggoth. There has to be an obligatory <laughs> running scene. And if anybody's going to want to talk to like ex- extraterrestrial alien <laughs> gods or entities you know, that are going to come down and talk to mankind, then surely it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> so you're basically saying that the old ones are Thetans, right? Could be. Apparently, though, Warner Brothers balked at the idea of a big-budget R-rated horror film. They, they were even going to make it in 3D. They've got to make it in oh 3D. Oh, my God. That's the worst bit. Okay, yeah, I don't want that. But I don't really see why it had to be R-rated, to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, Del Toro did eventually back down on that. Um, not with the original pitch, but a little while later, I think he pitched it to Legendary Pictures and did pitch it as a PG-13. Yeah. Um, which... Uh, but what would that be here, a 15? It would be either a 12 or a 15. 12A or whatever it used oh, to yeah, be called. 12A. Yeah, 12A. Yeah. But uh, some of the stuff, you, they, how he describes it at the late camp, people torn apart. We've got really the gruesome body horror aspects of it uh, with all those remains. Yeah, the, the vivisection of the bodies and the yeah. um, uh, yeah, the, the remains of the old ones later on and of Gedney and the dog. But you yeah. get that in 15s, jeez. I mean, you yeah. have to go a long way now to get an 18 in the UK. Yeah, again, this is, you know, a USR. And uh, I guess, you know, the American censors are probably more forgiving of violence than anything. Yeah, and also it's partly down to, you know, sexualised violence or sexual content. Well, I mean, it's sexualised violence here that gets you an 18. But, uh, you know, if we're thinking about a USR, it's it's really difficult to pin down because I I think the whole thing is more subjective in the US. The MPAA's uh, method is much more subjective than the very sort of tight checklist that the BBFC use. But I can see that if it were really violent, that could be enough to tip it over the edge. Oh, it could be, yeah. But, I mean, there's no need to make it that violent, I don't think. I'd say if it's been true to the, uh, true to the story, it should be. 
I, I want some really gruesome stuff in there if I want to watch it. Yeah, if you're going to try to make this a horrific film, you've got okay. a lot that can make it horrific. Certainly the atmosphere, the monsters and stuff like that. But I think that sense of, of gore... What's the gru- most gone? gruesome scene in Reservoir Dogs? The ear. You don't see the ear being cut off. No, you see him talking to it, which you is... See him, ah, yeah. <laughs> but so the, the real graphic horror of him cutting off the guy's ear, the camera, as he kind of sits on the guy and, like, you see him getting ready to do it, the camera pans up the wall but and you all do, you hear you, is the screams. But, but it's horrifying. Still, you still do see the side of the head afterwards. Yeah, afterwards, yes. yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that would, that would get in to a 15 now, I'm sure. For 10 years, it was enough to get Reservoir Dogs banned on home video in the UK. Yeah, but that's not now, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. But, but yeah, it, it certainly was seen as extreme at the time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've had discussions and uh, we've done a panel about this and so on about have we reached peak Cthulhu? And you know, my response has always been no. Just imagine if Guillermo del Toro did a blockbuster, you know, yeah. with a, an A-list star, somebody akin to Tom Cruise, and you get that massive draw of new interest in Cthulhu stories and and so on or it was you know a Netflix show or something like that that directly linked into Lovecraft's work how much more is that going to draw people into um interest in H.P. Lovecraft and so on yeah I agree wholeheartedly you know there's a huge mass market out there which is never tapped into Lovecraft but yeah, Del Toro, I mean, after all these setbacks, did eventually give up on the project. And part of the reason for this was the release of Prometheus, uh, the Ridley Scott film, which he felt covered a lot of the same elements of The Mountain's Madness and was worried that if, if his film came out in the shadow of that, then it would be seen as somehow derivative, ironically enough. I think most people have forgotten Prometheus now, so I don't think it'd be a problem, <laughs> would it? Well, I don't know. I think people still complain an awful lot about it. I liked it. But, I mean... The- <laughs> But, the, the, I mean, there was also the fact that it was a box office bomb, or at least not a huge bomb, but it was certainly a failure at the box office. And that, you know, the, if there was any kind of link in people's minds, it might be enough to taint at the Mountains And of it's Madness. not like anybody's going to come out of seeing Mountains of Madness and say, well, I think that had the same themes as Prometheus. It's like <laughs> a totally different film in a totally different setting with totally different monsters and everything. It, yeah, I don't think... If you were intellectualising it and analysing it, you might find some common themes, but I don't think you're going to... I've got it. ...be a massive ish- issue. There were mountains in a barren landscape. Far too similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there were also, you know, this, this alien race that accidentally uh, created human life, or created human life, uh, that also created these monstrous uh, entities that ended up destroying them. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are... Yeah, a lot of parallels. And isn't it just ripping off Moria? You know, they they delve too deep and and unleash some horror from the ancient world that comes up to to fight them. I mean, it's... It's drums in the deep, but in this case, (laughs) piping in the deep. Piping in the deep, yeah. (laughs) Pipes pipes in the deep. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess there is sometimes this problem with going back to older works that have been used as, as springboards for the ideas of a, a lot of other stuff. For example, I, I've often thought that it would be really interesting to see a film version of Philip K. Dick's novel Lubick. But one of the problems with it, I imagine now, is if you know someone did actually put out an adaptation of it, you know, an awful lot of people would just say, oh, they're just ripping off the Matrix. Mm. Uh, so in an interview, Del Toro admitted, it's very difficult for a studio to take the step doing an R-rated tentpole movie with a tough ending and no love story, set in period, from a writer, Lovecraft, who has a readership as big as any bestseller, but cannot be quantified because his works are in the public domain. Yeah, I mean, that's a couple of points I hadn't really considered at first. The fact that, A, you know, there is no love story in this. And, you know, the, like it or not, that's a huge element of of most commercial films. Yeah. Oh. yeah, that was an issue at the time, that it yeah. didn't feature any female uh, members in the expedition. But, I mean, you could easily put some in. It, it doesn't have to have women in there to be a romance. I mean, you could... Well, no, you know, you, you could but have, that was an issue yeah. that was yeah. raised because it was all male. Yes. Yeah. Like Dyer or Danforth female. That's not going to change much. Although I think a Dyer Danforth romance, I don't know, that would very much change the plot. But It would, but I, I, at the same time, I don't think necessarily it would ruin it. I mean, it would no. make it a different story, but I think, yeah, it could... Could be a good one. Yeah, I think yeah. it could work. 
But also, yeah, I mean, it hadn't occurred to me until he spelt it out here how difficult it is, I guess, for marketing people to quantify how popular Lovecraft is. Because, yeah, I mean, sure, his books probably still sell an awful lot, but how many people read his stuff online through free downloads? Because if Del Toro puts out a film, I'll go and see it. I don't really care whether it's based on a book or not. And I don't think most cinema goers are. Yeah, bear in mind how many films are made because someone sees, uh, you know, a producer or a studio exec sees that a particular book or a particular property is doing well and wants to cash in on that. In its most ridiculous end, you end up with things like the Emoji movie, where, you know, someone thinks, oh, Emojis are really popular, we should make a film that cashes in on that. But you, you do get an awful lot where people just sort of buy the name of a book and then just go off and make a completely different film. Yeah. Like Blade Runner. (laughs) Which has nothing to do with the William Burroughs story Blade Runner, but they bought the rights to it and bought the title. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to say nothing to do with the Philip Yeah, Dick's story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got a little uh, bit to do with Do Anna's Dream of Electric Sheep. Not that much. But it has absolutely nothing to do with Blade Runner. And then there was Antarctic Journal, which was a South Korean film from 2005. I remember I, I watched this at the time and I lent you the DVD, Paul, and it, another one of the films that we disagreed completely about because I thought it was really kind of dull and disappointing and I remember you really liked it. Um, so you inflicted it on Paul. <laughs> yeah, you thought, well, this is shit, I'll lend it to Paul. <laughs> and, and I was right. I, I thought, yeah. Th- this, well, you th- weren't right because I said it was good. <laughs> no, I was right in that yeah, I, I thought you'd like it because right. it was shit. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. See previous comment from our last social media <laughs> catch up of we're always on the same page. <laughs> well, it was so good I've pretty much forgotten it now actually, but yeah, because right. I thought you were going to say Paul never watched it, but I think I think you're right. I think I did watch it. Oh I yeah, I, did yeah. Like I, remember, it. I remember yeah. you telling me how much you liked it afterwards. Right. Yeah. I was probably just saying that cuz you didn't like it. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's more of a ghost story than Lovecraftian or cosmic horror, but it it definitely could be good Call of Cthulhu inspiration. It again tells the story of an Antarctic expedition, this time a South Korean one, following in the footsteps of an ill-fated uh, British expedition from the early twenties. And uh, it, instead of going for alien cities and and buried horrors and so on, it's much more of a, a psychological horror and ghost story. Yeah, I seem to think it came out around the same sort of time as that. Korean film, Our Point. Yeah, very similar in tone. Yeah. Uh, now, in terms of comics, there's the 2010 graphic novel adaptation by Ian Colbard, uh, who joined the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast when they covered this story. And uh, that's published by Self Made Hero as part of their iClassics line. Yeah, and that looks like a, a nice book. There's also an ongoing manga adaptation by Go Tanabe. I probably butchered the pronunciation there. Um, published in English by Dark Horse Manga. Uh, the second volume should be available by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, I've not read it, but I did flick through it in Lovecraftian Arts and Sciences when we were in Providence, mm. and it did look very nice. And there's also one that uh, I pointed out to the guys before coming on mm. air. That I can't remember his first name, but Beringer, the artist who's done the graphic version of, or the illustrated version of The Call of Cthulhu, has also released a French version of At the Mountains of Madness, again, with similar high-quality illustration. Yeah, yeah, so it's not a comic, it's an illustrated version of the story. Yeah. Uh, so it's still the, the full text of the story, but with you know lots of really lush illustrations. Yeah, I mean, yeah it, really nice. It looks like it's, pro- given it says Tome 1 on the front, yeah. that it's probably going to be a multi-volume Ooh. thing. Because given the sheer volume of the text and the artwork, yeah, that's going to be a that's going to be several. Yeah, I'd be very tempted to buy those. I don't buy many of that sort of thing, but yeah, I definitely recommend the Call of Cthulhu. That was a really good one. Mm. And the influence of this story has even seeped into music in some very strange ways. The Tiger Lilies did a collaboration with Alexander Hack to do this performance piece. I guess you call it cabaret. I'm I'm really not quite sure how to describe it, which they called Mountains of Madness, which is basically a musical and spoken word presentation that uses extracts from a lot of Lovecraft stories uh, in a very sort of cabaret theatrical manner. I've seen it and it's, oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's really strange. It's, It's very much my kind of music. Which, which helps. It, the whole thing is available on YouTube, and I'll link to it from the show notes. And we'll also link to the uh, track by the psychedelic rock band H.P. Lovecraft from 1967, also entitled At the Mountains of Madness. 
Yeah, and and dear God, can it be difficult finding that online? Because if you search for H.P. Lovecraft and At the Mountains of Madness, what are the chances you'll find the song? <laughs> Probably not on page 56. I mean, anybody wanting to check out the story, it puts me in mind, we should point out there's a lot of readings. Oh, yes. I was listening to one before recording today. Uh, I just picked a random one. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there is also Andrew Lehman's... Oh, it's, it's Sean Brandy who reads uh, at the Mountains of Madness. Is it? Yeah. Okay, because I was going to check that out, but I just ran out of time. But oh, no, I'm no, sure... I did listen to that, and it's really good. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's it's really good. Because I think the story really comes to life when it's read aloud. If you find yourself struggling with the reading the text, then listen to a good recording of somebody reading it, you know, like Sean Brandy, who is going to do a fantastic job. It really brings it to life. Yeah, that Sean Brandy recording is part of the complete fiction of H.P. Lovecraft that the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society released as an audiobook a couple of years ago. It's even available on Audible now. So if you're a member of Audible, you can spend one credit and get, uh, I think it's nothing like 67 hours worth of the H.P. LHS reading you Lovecraft. And they're also bringing out part two of all the other Lovecraft stories. Oh, wow. Yeah. What, the collaborations and revisions? Yes, I believe so. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah, I, they, I, were, they were I'm talking about that. For that. But yeah, we were talking about that at Necronomicon in Providence when I met them. I, and speaking of the HPLHS, they also did an adaptation of this for their Dark Adventure Radio Theatre, which was actually the first Dart production that I heard. Oh, right. I've not, I don't think I've heard that one. I mean, yeah. those productions are, as with everything the HPLHS do, absolutely fantastic and once again if you buy the physical version of it it comes with all sorts of photographs and telegrams and cool handouts that you can use in your games i've got a whole list of them now after having picked up their masks in the art of the tip dart at necronomicon yeah that that has helped with a couple of really long car journeys recently <laughs> so i hate driving but time just flies when listening to those they are really really good yeah yeah, and, and we get a, a mention in the Masks of Nialithotep one, don't we? Yeah, we do. <laughs> More than a mention, I understand. Yeah, yeah. We, we get speaking roles. Well, we get speaking I uh, Characters <laughs> named after us get speaking roles. It's not People who can us. speak our parts much better than us. <laughs> <laughs> speak the parts for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we are the line of, in the line of mourners at Jackson Elias' funeral. That's a yeah. big fucking spoiler, isn't it, Matt? Well, as, as funnily enough, one of the characters says... We thought this was kind of inevitable, <laughs> that something like this would happen to him. <laughs> and considering it happens in the first 12 minutes of the show, I don't think, as a spoiler of over seven hours long material, that's much of a spoiler. It, it, it is a spoiler for anyone who's playing the campaign and playing the prologue. Minor problem. Oh, well. <laughs> Let's wrap things up by having a discussion about some of the gaming inspiration that we can take from The Mountains of Madness. One question I'd pose to both of you to begin with is, yeah, obviously a big part of the, the downfall of the old ones in the story and what has kept them you know, hidden away from the world, even though they do survive just about anything, and has kept the shockers hidden away from the world, is the fact that the mountains are all covered in glaciers or co- all covered in ice. Now, in recent years, that's started to change, hasn't it? So, if we were looking at a modern-day sequel to The Mountains of Madness, what kind of effect do we think climate change would have on that? I don't really have time to talk about this, because I'm just going to go off and join Extinction Rebellion now, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me, I'd actually flippantly say nothing, because they're way down underground, down where their nice little penguin-fringed abyss and their hot springs... They won't see what's up above, not unless something draws their attention. Oh, it's warmer down there anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So why why are they going to need to go up top? Except, I mean, for a start, it wasn't those ones that Lake uncovered in the first place. He found other specimens in Mm -hmm. a a cavern somewhere. But also, you know, we've potentially got these cities dotted around the world. Um, At the very least, yeah, we we do potentially have the Shoggoths that have been sitting down there in the gloom that might notice a a change in the temperature and, you know, be willing to come up to the surface now. Do some sunbathing. I was about to say the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, they're just going to stretch out on these these big vistas and go, ah, this is the life. Put out their beach towels. Yeah. Just not human. (laughs) No, they're not human. Man. No, <laughs> not like the other things. They're, they're like men. They don't have respect. They, are, they, the they were down. men. Yeah, I mean, men and you know, not just men, human beings. Mm-hmm. 
But it did sort of remind me a little bit of a horror film that came out, um, oh gosh, must be at least 10 years ago, probably more, which is another one that both you and I saw, Paul, and, and flipping it around is one I really liked and you hated, uh, called The Last Winter. Oh, the Ron Perman one. Uh, yeah, 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 directed by Larry Fessenden, yeah, uh, who's made some of my yeah. favourite films. I wasn't much of a fan. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was really cool. But again, you know, it's, uh, that is very much about a group of scientists studying the effects of global warming and things are beginning to free, yeah, unfreeze from the ice. I've seen a few horror films with similar setups. There was also Red Glacier and there was another one, I can't remember, which had a very similar setup to The Last Winter, uh, except with the disease. It strikes me that you could take that basic idea and have you know, an Antarctic expedition going out to the Mountains of Madness, studying the effects of global warming there, mm. and suddenly encountering these things that are being thawed out of the ice. Because we've got the hint in the story that the shockers aren't even necessarily the worst things down there in the darkness. So what else is there that has been kept under the earth for all this time mm. by these layers of ice that is now going to wake up? An even bigger penguin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and along those lines, I mean, if we were looking at this from a modern day scenario, what kind of effect would modern technology have on it? Like, you know, the ability to use satellite imaging of uh, the whole area. Mm. Well, we certainly cut the journey time down. I did Google map the Fricker Glacier. So I <laughs> loaded it in and I'm like, it's not loaded. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it has loaded it's just a blank screen <laughs> so i like zoom, zoom out, out zoom out zoom out zoom out oh there's coastline there's white <laughs> and a bit of coastline I, I imagine the street view option wasn't really you know very helpful there either yeah i dropped the little guy in and wandered <laughs> around the place for a bit yeah it's a bit like the uh going back to the penguins the uh the penguins at the end of madagascar uh-huh. going, this is a bit boring isn't it just sat there on the uh on the ice shelf yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, if you were picking up a lot of stuff from the area with satellite imaging, you know, with this whole idea that you've got this other range beyond and that this is perhaps somehow Leng or Kadath or, you know, something else, something alien, something full of horrors, what would our ability to you know, sort of uncover all its secrets safely from orbit mean? The one thing, thinking of being able to map underground uh, air pockets or underground lakes there, because I know there's a couple mm. of well, scenario-worthy material that's come up, things like um, Lake Vostok with mm. the uh, the Russian drilling program down there to find this underground sea that hasn't been tapped into or been exposed to the outside world for millennia. But also, going back to fungi from Yogoth that we mentioned before, Ubo Safla is supposed to be in a underground chamber in Antarctica, guarding the tablets stolen from the Great Library of Solano, containing the, well, the reason the older things were cast down, the older things, the great old ones were cast down. That is definitely something that I would tap into to do a scenario with. Well, also, if you go along with what Lovecraft was saying in this story, the old ones are the great old ones. Hmm. Yeah, so there you go. There's a connection there. There's a lot going on in Antarctica. And if you did end up having this scientific exploration down there, that perhaps used unmanned drones or you know, more safe ways of exploring all this using modern technology and started uncovering some of these other secrets, I mean, what would happen if people actually got hold of, say, the secrets of making shoggoths? Well, construction industry would do well for a change. Hmm. For a little while. <laughs> yeah. per- perversely, I mean, that might actually be some really good green technology because I can't imagine you know, they emit much in the way of carbon dioxide. Apart from when they eat the occasional worker and then... Well, no, no that, that's going to... You know, yeah, that's lowering the, the carbon yeah, exactly. footprint. <laughs> Shoggoths will save the planet. I, I'm on board for that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, it is that time in the episode when we have people to thank. For a start, thank you very much to everyone who listens to us. Thank you to everyone who backs us on Patreon. And we have a couple of new $5 backers to not only say thank you to, but to sing to. We're jumping straight to the good stuff? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. We're we're not messing around here. We're going straight for the... Voice box? Yeah, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yes. And our first backer today at the $5 level is Nelson Mixon. So thank you very much, Nelson. Hey, thank you, Nelson. And uh, yeah, brace yourself. Yes, thank you very much, Nelson. Nelson Mixon, 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 Nelson Mixon,
And our next victim, I mean recipient of song, is Elijah Haywood. So, yeah, I hope you uh, like this, Elijah. Yes, thank you, Elijah, and, and praise be. We hope this brings you enormous pleasure. You know, Danforth, young boy, you with your keen eyes here, you should be able to appreciate this sight you see before us here. This long tunnel going off into the dark. Uh, d- avoid the penguin poo, man. What the hell? What's, what's that coming up out of the dark ahead of us? Some, something moving. It's like a like a subway train. No, it's 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 worse than that. It's, it, it's Elijah Haywood. Thank you, On social media, once again, people have been talking about us out there on that big world wide web, particularly on social media. We've had a lovely Apple podcast review from the final Sam in the USA, who says, The best podcast about Lovecraft! Exclamation mark! I discovered this podcast from a Reddit thread, and since the night I heard their siren call, I've been working my way through the archive. I love hearing them talk about Lovecraft and horror. Listening to this pod is like sitting with friends. Good friends, one might say. If you like Lovecraft, role-playing games, and talks of horror and what makes it tick, please give this pod a try. Fantastic job, guys. Thank, thank you very much, Sam. That's lovely of you to say so. And we've also had some great feedback on our recent episode about a dark song. Our friend Chris Glue on Facebook says, I did a fair bit of ritual magic stuff in the late 90s and early 2000s with a Crowleyist group, or a cult, myself. They were all very serious about their approaches, but with that, entirely non-pretentious. Nice, grounded, everyday people. Nothing very highfalutin, or even archetypally showbizy, albeit holding some strange ideas. The chap in this film seems very believable from your description of him and his worldview. Yeah, I mean, I have met all sorts of different kinds of occultists over the years, and a lot of them do fall into exactly what Chris says there. I mean, I have met some who are... Highly strung, very eccentric, uh, quite histrionic at times. I've met some who are deeply unpleasant as well. Mind, I do remember meeting a, a neo-Nazi black magician years back, uh, who yeah was one of the creepiest people I've ever met. But on the other hand, I pretty much share Chris's experience there. And over on Discord, Transhuman says, "I know exactly where Paul's daughter felt the budget dropped." And that was the demons. I did not buy them at all. They were just ashy, muddy dudes. You get more crusty-looking dudes at your local random music festival. Um, I don't know. I didn't have that big a problem with them, but... No, I, I, I found them really quite effective, personally. Yeah. I, you know, the fact that they did look relatively human just um, seemed right to me. Yeah, they, more creepy, if anything. Yeah, because I read them as part, you know, it was questionable whether they were just her hallucinations anyway. Mm. So whether they should be depicted as what you might call real demons or just hallucinatory demons, which might be strange people, different people are going to see that differently. And and Tor Nielsen did counter in the same conversation uh, that they reminded him of uh, Agori ascetics. If you get around to playing um, The Children of Fear when that comes out, you will actually meet some of these people. So the Agori are a sort of, I guess, heretical or splinter sect out of Hinduism. They're not... I I don't think they're accepted as being part of Hinduism. I I believe Shiva worshippers. And they're... (laughs) I, I, I guess yeah, you could call them like ultra-goths. They, they tend to live in burial grounds and smear themselves with uh, ashes from charnel fires and stuff like that, and they, they live there amongst the dead. Yeah. But, yeah, it is the fact that they tend to be smeared in the fat and the ashes and so on uh, from uh, funeral cremations means they do actually look a fair bit like those demons, yeah. Mm. James L. Stewart over on Facebook also said, Maybe a one-shot where the PCs are pizza delivery guys who accidentally interrupt an 18-month ritual. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> yeah. If I hadn't done something involving a certain 18-month ritual, I probably would go with that idea. But <laughs> that'd be retreading from very familiar ground at this point. That, that, that could be a good setup for an unknown Army's game. Yeah, or Mac Attacks. There you go. <laughs> Special delivery. 
It's one the question you ask your guardian angel, make me one with everything. <laughs> <laughs> to butcher a old joke. Yeah. Having come to the end of At the Mountains of Madness, what are our final thoughts about the story? Well, one thing occurs to me that we haven't mentioned, and it's just a very small thing, but the main character's name is spelled D-Y-E-R, which spells dire. And dire is a word that also means something really bad. Yeah, I wonder whether that was Lovecraft's intention. He, he didn't really strike me as someone who used a lot of puns. So well, it's not really well. I guess it, yeah. it's a pun, but well, it's certainly wordplay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not that he didn't have a sense of humour. It's just that I can't necessarily think of too many examples of him using wordplay like that. Oh, I don't think of it as humorous. I just think of it as. Um, oh no, the, no! I don't even mean as a joke, but no. yeah, as a sort of reference or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't strike me as the kind of thing that he'd do, but I'm, I'm not saying it's not possible. Well, he certainly had a sense of humour. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing that came up on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast when we were listening to that was that Lovecraft had apparently been planning to write a sequel to this story, which he never got around to because he died not long after it was eventually published, a couple of years after. So, yeah, obviously this never happened. But if he had, if he'd gone with his plan potentially of perhaps elaborating some of those things that Danforth saw at the end, what might that have been? I mean, what would that... Kind of mean for us as gamers. Well, he talks about this in a letter, and Joshi quotes it, I think, uh, at the end of uh, Joshi's annotated version of At the Mountains of Madness. It seems like the thing that Danforth looked back at, you know, Lovecraft was sort of thinking it was something beyond the mountains there that was something very primeval that sort of risen up. It doesn't really define it, but it seems like he wanted to go back and do that. And to me, it almost seems like there's been a lot of scientific rationale within the story. And this one, he seems to be almost going away from that and saying, oh, actually, but there's this kind of otherworldly, almost supernatural thing there is the way I get the feel from his little intimations that he sort of made about his possible sequel or or fuller version of this story. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, some of the later stories that Lovecraft wrote followed on from the mould of this one and were very much science fiction stories. I certainly say Dreams of the Witch House and uh, The Shadow Out of Time. But I mean, there were plenty of other ones where he stuck with the supernatural trappings, like you know The Thing on the Doorstep or The Haunter of the Dark, mm-hmm. or even potentially The Shadow of Rinsmith, though that's borderline. So it's not impossible to think that if he'd gone back to these ideas that it would have been almost a counter to the, the, the rational, scientific, dry approach to this book and bringing back some of the magic and, and weirdness. Because almost, I think at one point he says the old ones prayed to it, mm. whatever this thing was. I kind of want to go with the idea of uh, that throwaway line about the like the ray of purple across the sky mm. and kind of tying back to the Elder Pharos that potentially he looked back at just the right time to catch a glint of light from something at the um, off in the mountains rather than just, oh, it's a great big gribbly monster, but something that gave him that kind of insight. Um, I'm kind of coming back to one of the scenes in the second Hellraiser film where the, the Doctor catches the Black Ray coming out of Leviathan and has this horror montage flick through his mind, something that kind of really blasts his sanity in that fashion. Actually, so th- what that really reminds me of is Philip K. Dick. So there's this famous story about Philip K. Dick in the 1970s where he had this mystical religious experience where he'd ordered something from the local drugstore, I think, and the woman who came to deliver it opened up the door and he found himself hit suddenly by this beam of blinding red light that he described as being like a laser beam that went into his eye and he suddenly had this transformative experience where he realised that time was an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so. Yes. And that as well as living in the modern day, they were still living in early Christian times in ancient Rome and that both he and the woman were simultaneously the people that they were in the modern world and these early Christians hiding out from the Roman Empire. And that he got all sorts of other information at the same time from this entity, which he referred to as Valis, this godlike entity that was in orbit around the world, beaming information into his head. 
And this included things like the knowledge that his young son had a heart defect that had been undiagnosed until this stage, and that he, filled with this alien knowledge, he took his son to the doctor, and the doctor examined him, and found out, yes, he did have this heart defect, and if it hadn't been picked up on, his son would have died. So just from that one flash of light, he suddenly had... It was like you know, a download of information into his head. And that strikes me as being quite similar then to what potentially happened to Danforth, that he just looks into this, gets this flash of light, and it is suddenly like all this information from this alien god being beamed into yeah, his head. Yeah, very much seems, you know, that big litany of items that he reels off in the aeroplane on the way back very much seems to play to that. And I like, you know, your likening of Pharos the lighthouse image you know a light the light from a lighthouse kind of rotates so you'd have to look back just at the right moment to catch mm. it beaming at you mm-hmm. and you know with that idea he happened to look back just at that moment so even if dyer had then looked back he wouldn't have seen it because the moment would have passed it's what kind of nice it's what happens when you get 100 percent spot hidden <laughs> yeah <laughs> but also aren't lighthouses meant to warn you of something mm-hmm. maybe they are yeah. Yeah, don't come here. There's a big rock. <laughs> and the other thing that had occurred to me about about that huge litany of stuff that Danforth reels off after that is that this is possibly the origin of that whole idea that um, a bout of madness, the first bout of mythos-induced madness that you get, gives you 5% in Cthulhu mythos. Because mm. all of a sudden, you know, he's gone mad, he's looked back, and now he has a head full of mythos knowledge. Well, we hope we've managed to increase your own Cthulhu Mythos knowledge by maybe one or two points listening to these shows. And if not, that we've at least cost you a D10 of San. At well, least. of that we can be sure. <laughs> so until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.